When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, the host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. Throughout the World Cup, we're going to bring you a podcast from our friends at the soccer magazine Howler. They'll have analysis from the games, news from outside the stadiums in Brazil, and reports from a writer embedded with the U.S. national team. I hope you enjoy this special podcast extra, and I'll now pass the mic to George Qureshi, the founder and editor of Howler. Take it away, George. Welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi. I am the editor of Howler, and this week, as with last week, I am joined by Danny Carbassian, who remains the only member of this podcast to have scored for Arsenal to date. To date. Hi, Danny. Hey, George. How's it going? And yes, I am still going strong. <laughs> Good. And in Bristol, England, not Connecticut, David Goldblatt is the author of The Ball is Round and Ball Nation. David, hello. Hey, evening. Good to be with you, man. It's a lot later where you are. It's a lot later. You stayed up for a very exciting game. Yeah, there was no way I was going to bed before the end of that. You're now conditioned just to be waiting for you know, late winning goals by the American team in the World Cup, right? <laughs> it was great. I love a last-minute goal. 
better than the Swiss one as well. That was good, but you felt like, yeah, the U.S. really had earned that one. If you can't tell, we are recording this minutes after John Anthony Brooks put the U.S. ahead and won the game against Ghana in, you know, it was the first World Cup game for the U.S. Group G now looks a little bit less deathly or, I don't know, fatal, lethal. You know, Germany wiped out Portugal today and, in fact, wiped out some of the players, so we won't have to deal with Pepe or, uh, who is it, Fabio Contral? Contral. Uh, well, that's good for Portugal, too. They won't have to deal with Pepe either. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I tweeted after that that the Portuguese are going to have to rethink their strategy of, of violence and stupidity now that Pepe's gone. But, yeah, so we're talking about... Obviously, the U.S. today, we will be hearing from Alex Alexander Abnos, who is a Howler editor. But separate from that, he is also, this, this summer, he has been hired by U.S. Soccer to go and report on the U.S. team from Brazil. I almost said South Africa. I'm, I'm just in that headspace now, you know, the comeback win. <coughs> we'll also be speaking with Dr. Sandra Rossi, who is on the medical staff at River Plate. And she is helping to, I think I'm saying this right, she's helping to develop the player's mental capacities. She had a much, much more scientific word for that. I believe it was neuroplasticity. And my knee surgeon. I called him because I was curious about Luis Suarez and whether he should be even pretending to warm up on the sideline. And uh, I spoke to him about Luis Suarez's knee. We'll have an update on that. So first, I think we need to jump right into the U.S. game because that's freshest. That just happened. It was exhilarating. Exhilarating for like the first minute and the last minute. Otherwise, it was just really, really nerve-wracking, right? What do you think, Danny? Yeah, I, thought, I mean, as you said, right off the bat, we uh, we got that goal, and I think that gives a little bit of breathing room right off the bat, as I said. Um, but as, as we were talking about after the game, I said I've just come through like a bit of a stress headache, I feel, just because for about 85 minutes, we were just kind of defending and, and getting forward when we could. When we did have the ball, we didn't do enough with the ball, and we kept giving it back to them. They got that goal very, very late, which deflated us a little bit. But then when we got that that winner even later, I think it, it definitely helps us greatly in this group and hopefully sets us up for the next game. Yeah, I mean, watching it as a U.S. fan, whenever we clear the ball, whenever we stop an attack, which we were doing over and over in this game, I was sort of doing like a mental fist pump. David, I can imagine that for you, a neutral, it was less exciting and probably a little boring to watch at times. No, not at all. I love that kind of grind where you're desperately holding on to a lead and you know the other team's coming for you. I thought it was great. And it was really interesting to listen to the way um, it was being commentated on here in the UK. I mean, as you can imagine, uh, the US men's team is, uh, people are pretty dismissive a lot of the time but there were a lot of lot of words like character and grit and defiance being used about it and uh, yeah more than grudging respect i think people thought it was a terrific performance i think we should talk about the lineups it was the same lineup that started against nigeria which i think a lot of people expected but obviously there were a couple of early substitutions i think anytime you sub a player in the first half and then at halftime it's you know you have to raise your eyebrow and think okay what's going on here and and they all seem to be sort of muscle related injuries so not not from play but you know more from preparation from hydration and from stretching and from warming up and maybe the travel and the wear and tear on the bodies you know I, I was wondering about that first of all hey what's going on do you have any idea what could be going on with these players who all were pulling up with hamstring things and b you know what does this do for us going forward do we need to readjust are, are, are all the the team's going to be dealing with higher wear and tear going forward? It was. I mean, Josie Altador goes down with a, you know, as a, a hamstring strain, I think is what they said. And uh, even Taylor Twelman was saying, 
I have no idea what's going on. These guys drink so much water preparing for this. You know, they've been training for, for the past month and a half just for this this month. And all of a sudden, it's like these guys are just coming into it and they haven't done anything, you know, going into this. And that's obviously not the case. You, you bring on Aaron Johansson to replace Josie, and then you have to bring on a young John Anthony Brooks who ends up being the hero uh, for Beasley at halftime. And, you know, I feel like John Anthony Brooks, he goes into this situation thinking, Wow. Okay. First of all, I'm making you know my actual kind of U.S. men's national team competitive proper debut here. We're in the World Cup, and now he scores the winner. And you could see it was amazing. His <laughs> his reaction when they scored the goal was just incredible. And I said it in, in in the studio earlier. I said, you know, it was nice to see him just really just taken aback by the moment. Like this is this just happened. You know, there's no arrogance in it. It was just like wow. I can't believe this is the culmination of everything I've ever done. I think totally. Well, there are two things I wanted to ask you about. There, one is you know you mentioned the fact that we were not able to really keep the ball uh, in the second half. And I think that Josie coming off had a lot to do with that. You know, he plays a very different game than Aaron Johansson. You know, he's more comfortable with his back to the goal, and he can sort of provide a breather for his teammates. He can receive the ball and then lay it off more so than Johansson. I think at one point, Twelman said, Johansson needs to vary his runs a little more. He's, if he's running behind the defense every time, that's a lower percentage pass from, from a teammate. So it doesn't give them a chance to sort of work the ball up the field. A, is that right? B, you know, is this going to change the way that we approach playing a team like Portugal or Germany? Because we're not going to be able to hold the ball in their half quite as much as we would have tried to, even if that seems like an ill-advised strategy in the first place. One thing was, it was funny because we did keep playing balls kind of into channels and over the top, and Aaron wasn't particularly kind of showing defeat and holding the ball up for us, which... It's kind of silly because when you're playing a team like Ghana where the back line can outrun you, you know, every single time, uh, I, I probably as a striker wouldn't have continued to look to get the ball you know, in behind. Of course, you have to switch it up. You know, Sometimes if it's on, you do go in behind. But for the U.S., when I look at the U.S., we do get by in these big competitions often by out-muscling teams, as, as you said, those words, character, grit, all this sort of stuff. And Ghana's a team that... By the end, they still looked very fresh. Like the guys were still running 100 miles per hour at us. Mm-hmm. They're not a team that you can outmuscle and outrun because they're a team of athletes, you know, who can also play good football. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit interesting. And I think when we do play these, you know, the next two games, Portugal, Germany, we will have to tactically, it'll have to be, it'll have to be quite different because they will probably have more quality in in the final third as well. You know, the number of balls that came into our box that we had to defend eventually they'll wear us down. And oh yeah. It, it was actually a bit ironic because they dumped in about 20 crosses and then they ended up getting a goal through an incredible combination down the left uh, and then it was a nice kind of worked goal that way but uh yeah we'll definitely have to learn how to keep the ball not learn how to keep the ball because our players can keep the ball but we'll definitely have to do a better job of keeping the ball against these these teams that can punish us on the break okay and the second question was about the defense i was surprised to see brooks brought in, brought on in, instead of omar gonzalez I would imagine a lot of people were. He seemed to be the starter, and then Cameron sort of supplanted him, and now he seems to be even lower on the pecking order. I don't really have a question for you. I'm just sort of shocked by that. You know, a lot of people see Omar play weekly here in MLS, and a lot of people probably, in the, you know, American fans don't particularly see the Bundesliga every week and see John Anthony Brooks play every week. You know, Jurgen Klinsmann knows, he knows the game and he knows the decisions that he's made. He's obviously backed them and these are big decisions. They're not just little decisions that he's made. Leaving Clarence Goodson at home and taking a guy like John Anthony Brooks, it's a huge decision. And American fans, you know, if, you, if you're not watching the Bundesliga every single week, it's very hard to base your entire opinion off a player based off one game. Granted, he didn't have a very good game in the Ukraine or against Ukraine in Cyprus, but 
he still he still got the job done. It was very shaky at first, you know, the first time it came in, and everybody said, well, he must be left-footed because the ball bounced, and he tried to clear the ball with the wrong foot and everything. But I think once he settled, completed a couple passes, and got kind of comfortable in his surroundings, he, he really started to come into well, he was also He was also playing with, I think, Gooch in that game. Oh, Gucci Onyewu? Exactly, against, yeah. against Ukraine, and, and that, that communication among the center backs is key. It is. It's, it's huge. Well, that's, one, that's another big issue, kind of our back four. It's like every time uh, Jurgen's put out a back four, it's like, well, here's another back four that's never played with one another um, as well. But this will be huge for his kind of his confidence moving forward because I think, you know, even he knew he didn't have the greatest of games uh, against the Ukraine. And, and for this to get the winner as well, it's just, you know, he'll be buzzing now. Now we're going to hear from Alexander Abnos. He's a senior editor on Howler Magazine, but independently of that, he was hired by U.S. Soccer to go down and cover the team as the in-house writer-reporter for ussoccer.com. Here is Alex's update. Hey, how's it going? This is Alex Abnos uh, giving you a little update from the U.S. men's national team. Uh, I just came back to my hotel a couple hours ago from the U.S.'s World Cup opening 2-1 win over Ghana at the Arena das Dunas in Natal. It was really just from the first minute to the last minute an absolutely thrilling game. And I came away from the game with you know a couple pretty distinct impressions, one of which is that you know this team in a lot of ways, and especially in that win, resemble figures from U.S. soccer past. I could go on and on about it, but I'll just pick out one way in particular. I think Clint Dempsey is sort of becoming Brian McBride 2.0, um, and I think the broken nose uh, he suffered in the game really just adds to that kind of mystique. I mean, here's a guy that will go all out uh, every single game and will put his head into places where it shouldn't necessarily be, and uh, now he officially has a battle scar to prove it. That nose injury is something I could very easily see McBride sustaining in a similar type of game. Uh, the other thing I really noticed is that the U.S. support of this game was just unbelievable. Uh, I haven't seen or heard of a World Cup game with quite so much pro-U.S. support since they played in Kaiserslautern in 2006. Kaiserslautern, of course, uh, very close, actually the home of a, a U.S. Uh, military base. So that is the explanation for that. I think in Natal, it's just we had a lot of Americans that wanted to come visit Brazil, and a lot of Americans were definitely there and made their voices heard. Uh, that place was uh, a madhouse um, of U.S. fans. Ghana fans, too, but uh, you know the, it was clearly swayed toward the U.S. side. The other thing that I came away with isn't so positive. Uh, the Josie Altidore injury is going to be just you know really huge for this team this team relies a lot on Josie Altador. you talk to Michael Bradley you talk to anybody else on the team and you know they will tell you all day about how good of a player Josie is and how important he is especially for the way the U.S. plays so the way the team adapts to that injury will be really interesting to watch in the coming days and in the coming games and then lastly of course got to put him last just because he scored uh, so late John Brooks you know, what can you say about this kid, 21-year-old, thrown into his first World Cup game? You know, all he does is he just goes and scores the game winner. Uh, he came out to the press afterwards and was talking about how he had a dream a couple days ago, a couple days before the game, that he scored the game winner against uh, Ghana in the 80th minute. Now, he was six minutes off by that, but I don't think he'll really mind. Um, it was a great goal, great game. Uh, I'm happy to be here covering it and really interested to see how the U.S. can build on this one and take it into the Amazon uh, to take on Portugal in the coming days. This is Alex Abnos signing off. (laughs) 
so David, I know that like us, you've been watching every single game. Where does this stack up in terms of come from behind, late come from behind wins for you in the past week? Oh, this is the one for me. I mean, the only other comparable one is the uh, the late goal um, for the Swiss against Ecuador. But it was a game it was you know didn't have any of the kind of character or sort of drama of tonight's game. And then yeah, just to snatch it with someone who's come on just right at the end. You know, for for sheer drama as a neutral, uh, that th- this has been the best come from behind game. But there's been so many kinds of games. You know, we've had masterpieces from Spain and the Netherlands. You know, we've had breezes. We've had one one genuinely dull game. There's you know, there's real variety in the kind of the stories and the way they're playing out. What's funny is um, the one you're referring to is, I think, as being dull is is Nigeria Iran, and uh, Danny actually missed the first few minutes of this U.S. game because he had waited for the end of that one to get in his car and drive down. How are you pleased you did? Yeah, I was, I was banging my steering wheel listening to ESPN Radio, and they said Clint Dempsey has scored. I was like, oh great. <laughs> I mean. It is genuinely great, but I wish I were there to watch it. Um, Still, it gave one a chance to kind of, you know, clear clear one's head and think about something something else other than being completely glued to the screen. It's true, because every single game has been incredible. I mean, really top-quality stuff. I saw um, a tweet from Miguel Delaney, I think, that said after the first 11 or 12 games of the last World Cup, there were 20 goals, and after the first 11 or 12 of this, there's been 40. And each game has been pretty awesome. I mean, even the, you know, even Costa Rica, Uruguay, Uruguay go up and you're like, all right, great game. This is, you know, Uruguay have this now. And then Costa Rica just continue fighting and they're top of the, they're top of the group right now. Now I want to, I want to ask you about that, Danny, because I know that one of the revelations of that game was Joel Campbell. I believe you had a role in bringing him to Arsenal. Can you talk about him? I want to just remind everybody, he is the 21-year-old winger, I want to say? Striker winger. Striker, okay, for for Costa Rica. He had a great game, was just so confident, taking people on. I don't think I've seen a a striker that dominant in a game since, I don't know, from CONCACAF at least, since, I, I mean... Dwight York maybe for <laughs> for Trinidad. I mean that's it goes back that far. Talk about what you saw. I mean that was a while ago and what he what he does so well. Yeah, I saw Joel in uh, Guatemala in the under 20 CONCACAF qualifiers actually for a World Cup several years back and just right off the bat I just knew he, he, he you could see that he had something certain definitely special about him. His left foot is fantastic which I think we all we 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 actually saw that earlier this year against uh, Manchester United in the Champions League with Olympiacos where he scored a great goal. Um, and then he scored. He scored this goal um, this past weekend, where he just—he's very calm in the box. He's technically he's extremely gifted, and it's the classic case of a cultured left foot, if that makes sense. And uh, he, he got the ball in the box and just you know hammered it home. And then and then he almost scored again. He actually almost scored an even better goal, uh, where he collected the ball and hit one from about 30 out mm-hmm. that that would have been one of the goals of the tournament. You know, had it gone in. Um, but then he also what he also does is he actually drops in. And we were talking about Aaron Johansson a little bit here. Joel is quite good at dropping in and collecting the ball and then actually creating as well. And he uh, he ended up setting up the third goal where he dropped off, got the ball, turned, and played a really nicely weighted ball. That's right. He had the um, assist there. In behind for that for that third goal. And it's, it's great for me to see because I, I saw him quite a while ago. And, and at Arsenal, there is a lot of talent there. So when, when you do find these guys and they're unable to get work permits, you, you hope for the best for them. But uh, it's great to see that he's kind of come a long way from even when I saw him first and, and continues to develop. Totally. I mean, I think people thought of this group as a very, very competitive group, but definitely a three-team group. That said, Uruguay is has not really replenished its its 
you know, starting 11 with a ton of young players. Forlan was still starting. Uh, they were missing Luis Suarez, in my opinion, the best player in the world right now. And we're going to talk to uh, a knee surgeon, like I said, a little later about, about his knee. But David, that's also England's group. And I know you were probably watching England, Italy pretty closely. I thought that was a really, really interesting game. And I thought it was over for for England as soon as Italy scored, but then they came back and scored right away. What were your thoughts on I that? I mean, I think the first thing to say is, you know, for once we're going into a World Cup with reasonable expectations and everybody quite likes the team. They like the way they play. They like it that there's a lot of young talent in the team. They like it that there's been no fights, that there's been no kind of tabloid craziness. And that's just the real pleasure to watch England at the World Cup without all of that baggage. And um, I thought we just got, you know, they were we lost we lost to a better, smarter team. But you know, on the counter attack at speed, I thought England looked pretty good, and Uruguay seemed a little sluggish and not quite, you know, not quite at the races. So hope springs eternal. The thing about doing this twice a week is that there's so much to talk about. Uh, something we haven't even touched on is, you know, David, you mentioned it, but we haven't really touched talked about um, Spain Netherlands which was a, a completely, I don't know if it was a shock. I mean, I think it was a shock, right? That was a shock. Yeah. I was shocked. Yeah, it was a shock. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it wasn't the Dutch team that, that walked out in 2010 in the final. They played a different kind of football. I mean, it was a shock even in the, you know, the first half Spain took the lead, had a little bit of an edge. The Dutch showed something. They had a couple of chances, but no one was expecting what came and you know with such flair and such you know such grace at times and also just so humiliating for the Spanish I mean my kind of image of that game is uh, Casillas sort of scrabbling in front of Robin on the ground you know from the camera uh, high up above the pitch and it was it was humiliation that unfortunately has become like a image of Casillas that we've seen a few times recently which is too bad because he's really the memories of him are so great part of me thinks okay Occasionally, there's just a blowout and a team collapses, and you have, you know, if you let in three goals, you might as well have let in two more. You just, you're, you're just beaten. But with a team as experienced as Spain, with players as skilled, but but really as experienced, that's that's surprising to me. Danny, I want to get your thoughts on whether this is indicative of some larger shift that's happening with the squad, or was that a one-off game where they were just totally humiliated and will come back and and be the Spain that we have seen over the last six years. I don't know if they'll be come back and be the Spain that we've seen over the past six years because, you know, six years ago, Xavi, Iniesta, and these guys were all kind of different players as well. You know, there's already been talk that Xavi might be heading to the Far East, you know, in this next contract, and that wasn't the case six years ago. You know, they were at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly think they were dismantled. Like, it, it, it's crazy to think they, they didn't chuck it in either. Like, by the end, it's not like when you're Spain and you're the world champions— you don't just say, "All right, well, we've given up three. Like, let's. It doesn't matter at this point because that's not the case. It's the World Cup. You can't. Uh, you can't do that." I think Holland were just legitimately very good on the day. And one of the cool things I think the Holland does is they actually make Route One football look quite sexy at times too. You know, like the the, the, the no time where they need to keep the ball and pass it around and, and get it out of tight areas. Um, but then they've shown in World Cups past as well in '98 when Burkamp brought down that ball and, and, and did his magic against Argentina. Like, they know when they can hit that 60-yard long ball, and they did it twice against Spain this mm-hmm. time. Daly Blind hit two lovely balls in, and 
and what happens with uh, with the Netherlands is that their strikers are actually technically gifted enough to actually do things with it and score goals. You know, right. Van Persie's header was just out of this world. I mean, to, to lob a keeper <laughs> is incredible. To lob a keeper on the run with your head is just and from, on a different and planet. from that angle. From that angle as well, yeah. I mean, it's, And then to fall to the ground so gracefully. That was incredible. And then Aryan Robin as well, the same thing. When he brought down that ball and then actually cut away from goal and then cut back inside and yeah. then every time he shoots it's a 90 mile per hour rocket into the top corner yeah um yeah, it was just it was, it was you know obviously not for the spanish fans but it was a joy to watch as a neutral no david you're right but also you know the the physical display that i remember most from that game even beyond van percy's swan dive is robin grabbing the ball and just running around sergio ramos and just making him look slow. That was incredible. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary burst of acceleration over a kind of incredibly short distance. I mean, the cliche in English football is to refer to the tur- hitting the turbo button. I'm <laughs> struggling, actually, for a better, a better way of, of putting it because it is just, you know, just in two or three seconds, something so explosive that it takes you round. Uh, yeah, no, it was special stuff. Four years ago, Thomas Mueller was the young player of the tournament. This year, he came back and scored a hat-trick in the first game against Portugal. Uh, We talked a little bit about how Portugal is weakened for the next game, although it's questionable whether they're actually weakened with those players out. A a part of me thinks, okay, Portugal is very beatable. The other part of me thinks, uh uh-oh, they just got embarrassed, and we didn't look all that all that resilient. I mean, I guess I guess that's ironic, but you know, for a long time we looked very tired, our players, and, and pretty brittle. What do you expect to see? I mean, I, making predictions in this World Cup is totally is a loser's game, but what do you expect to see in the next round? I mean, this this game I think took a lot out of the United States. That you know, when when you look at the end of the game, and as I said, you saw the Ghanaian players still running 100 miles per hour, buzzing around everywhere, and they looked at us. I felt like every time the camera zoomed in on any of our players, they were clutching some body part like holding it and you're like oh is this another <laughs> injury like what what is happening to us right now portugal will not want to get humiliated again and they will not and, and when you have a player like ronaldo on your team who's capable of doing whatever he wants to do on any given day then we can't take them lightly whatsoever i mean even messi showed in the second half against bosnia that with a slight little tactical change it's a completely different game you know Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. the goal that he scored we see those goals he scores all the time at Barcelona where he just collects the ball runs in deep collects the ball combines with one of his teammates runs across the face of the the goal uses three defenders as shields essentially and then and then curls his effort in and I think Ronaldo has that ability to to do just that on any given day. So it's hard to it's hard to make a prediction against a team like Portugal because when Ronaldo's on his game anything can happen. Is is Ghana done? I think that I mean that, those three points. I think the US and Ghana were looking at this as the game that they had to win if they had a chance to go through. I mean, I wouldn't say Ghana are done. I, I think they. It, it, it'll definitely be hard to come back. I mean, when you have Portugal and Germany left to play, it's 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 <laughs> definitely not going to be easy. But weirder things have happened already in this World Cup, I think, too. So, and as I said, like they they looked like they were still up for it by the end of the game, too. They were still going, and and if if it comes down to the last game of the group where they need a result, uh, I think they definitely have the physical capability to get through it. You know. Yeah, David, are you? I have this niggling feeling that you are not an England fan. No, I'm an England fan. Man, I drove 1,500 kilometres from Cape Town to Bloemfontein in a very dodgy combi van to see them slaughtered 4-1 by Germany in the round of 16. So, yeah, I'm an England... I, I am very much an England fan, but 
I've done too much disappointment and too much over-expectation and I'm simply not going to do it again. I think England can beat Uruguay. I don't really believe in Uruguay and I don't really believe that Suarez is going to be the threat that he usually is. With the, with the, I can't see how you can come back after you know, quite a long time out, no match play and really turn it on. So I'm, you know, I'm quietly optimistic, but I'm, uh, I'm re- ready to be very wrong. Okay, and now to talk about Luis Suarez's knee. You know, I called my, my own knee surgeon. I had knee surgery back in February. I called Dr. Seth Gasser, and we will hear from him now. Okay, now I'm joined by Dr. Seth Gasser, who is a specialist in orthopedic sports medicine. Did I get that right? That's correct. And you work at uh, the Florida Orthopedic Institute in Tampa, Florida. Uh, and I know you because you operated on my ACL in in February. And you work on a lot of top athletes in the U.S. Um, and so I wanted to have you on to talk about Luis Suarez. Luis Suarez hurt his knee. It's kind of vague about, you know, we don't really know what he did. Uh, I sent you some some reports in the media that sort of, you know, and I asked you sort of to piece it together, see if we could figure out what he did to his knee and if he should be anywhere near a soccer field just 24 days after having surgery. So w- based on what they said in the newspapers, Dr. Gasser, what do you think might have happened to Luis Suarez's knee? So my take on the limited information that's been put out in the media on uh, Suarez is that he had a lateral meniscus tear in his knee. The meniscus are those horseshoe-shaped cushions of cartilage that sit between the end of your femur or thigh bone and the top of your tibia or your shin bone. And their main function is to act as a shock absorber to help dissipate load across your knee joint. The surgery that's, that that usually involves, how severe is that and, and you know, what is the recovery time usually? And the meniscus itself has very little blood supply to sustain any type of healing response which means that only those tears that are in the very edge of the meniscus have enough blood supply to heal with a repair. That's probably not the case for him. Most tears are not repairable. The term is that they had the torn section just simply excised and removed. So this is a relatively minor procedure to do what's called a meniscectomy. It's done through two small incisions in the front of the knee that you basically can close with one stitch and put a couple Band-Aids over the knee when you're finished. The recovery time for that can be anywhere from three weeks to three months, depending on how the patient's doing afterwards. So it's quite possible that he could play in the next game if he continues to do well. And when you say recovery time, that's like that's back to being on the field and performing at the highest level. That's correct. Uh, here in Tampa, we used to have a professional soccer team, which was the Mutiny. There have been occasions for those players where we did simple arthroscopic meniscectomies had guys go back to play within two weeks. That's more the exception than the rule, and I would say the the rule is probably more like two months. But uh, he's already uh, getting close to a month out, so it wouldn't wouldn't be unusual to see him on the field. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Gasser, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome, George. Okay, I'm joined now by Dr. Sandra Rossi, who is uh, in Miami this week from Argentina. You live in Buenos Aires, is that right? Yes, I live in Buenos Aires. Okay, and tell me about your new position. I'm now part of the coaching team of River Plate in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and maybe it's something new to join a a woman into the the team so well. 
Right. This and, is new for me too. Yeah, and yeah. River, River Plate is one of the big, the big yes. teams in, in Argentine soccer. It's one of the biggest ones with Boca, that mm-hmm. is the other strong team. Yes, it's one of the, of the biggest ones. Tell me a, a little bit about your, about your role as a coach. Okay. Are, you, are you a coach I, I, or a... No, no, no. I'm a doctor. A doctor. I'm a doctor in sport medicine, but I work especially in neuroscience applied to sport. It means that we work with neuroplasticity of the brain. It means that the brain can readapt itself depending on the stimulation that it receives. So you can train skills like visual reaction time, that very peripheral vision, concentration, attention, all these kinds of functions that is not so usually that uh, soccer players or elite players, for example, rugby or whatever, trains uh, in the daily training. So neuroscience train the brain of the athletes. So back in the 1960s, there was a famous Ukrainian coach named Valery Lobanovsky. Mm -hmm. And he, one of the things he did was he would have his players do a test on a computer where they would test sort of their visual reaction, their, you know, their reflexes. Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. It's something like that. Yes, it's something like that. We work with uh, um, softwares that we designed uh, to test, for example, how many milliseconds the athlete needs to see something that comes to his visual field and react, for example, with the hands or with the feet. So we can measure it in milliseconds and we can control the evolution of the athletes. And so is the point of testing for that to see who you want to sign as a new player or to improve the abilities of your current Both of them, yes. We we want to improve the better one, the best athlete that even Messi, maybe we can uh, get better for him because the brain is all the time in evolution. So maybe you can uh, train in your brain. You can get better results and you get uh, faster responses. You can get more time in concentration. You can have more visual attention through the training in your brain. Take me through some, like a, a test example. So you would, you would take a player into this, into a lab, I assume. Yes. And what, what would you do with him? Maybe the, the player can be sit down, relaxed or standing in front of a monitor where stimulus is shown to him every time in less time. So he have to react sooner and sooner and faster and faster. So we test, for example, how many milliseconds he needs to react. We can measure the degrees where he can see an object moving into the peripheral. There's a, a lot of tests that we can take to this. You're doing this work in the lab. We work with all the physical trainers and we try to explain to the physical trainers the importance that, that have the vision during the game. So uh, we want to push the limits of the visual system of the athletes. So they incorporate some of the neuroscience concepts to make an environment more rich in, in terms of stimulus and doing something by the side, doing something that he has to react quickly and make decisions. Mm-hmm. And we work really together. It's, it's, a, it's a teamwork. So you're describing a lot of visual stimulation, but, you know, an athlete, a soccer player relies on his ears. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. We you... stimulate the ears too. Really? Yes. For example, sometimes the ears are the eyes in my back. If a teammate calls me or, or send me here, it's just seeing, but without using your eyes. So, yes, we, we stimulate all the senses, all the senses where you can take information from the environment. All the senses sent to the brain, special things that, that you need 
to play, but the 80% of the information that you take from the environment come to your brain through your eyes. Before this, it had nothing to do with football. It was just the brain. Yes. So has working with athletes taught you anything new? Have you learned anything about the brain through working with athletes? Yes, of course. When I, I work with them, with athletes, it's really like work with superhumans. They are In completely different. They, are, they have so much faster responses. And maybe they have some visual attention. They're so accurate. In the things that they're looking for, they're looking at, they are different for regular people. Can a regular person train their yes. brain to become? Yes, yes, of course, of okay. course, of course. Regular people can can train, and you can notice it easily because regular people maybe, for example, you have a visual reaction time of 400 milliseconds, and nothing has a visual reaction time of 150. Wow. Okay. Yes, it's a big difference. So, what would I do? To, to train my brain to think more like an athlete's brain? Well, you can train, for example, video games. Video games? Yes, can help you. Oh, good, good. Yes, I, I I, it's, it's a good news or I've not. I've been training for a long yeah. time. <laughs> yes, yes. But it depends that how many times you spend in front of the monitor. Because if you are three hours, it doesn't work. You have to spend less time. Were you a River Plan fan before you before you started yes, working? Yes, okay. yes, yes. I was a little girl. Yes, so, I, yes. So yes, you yes. you consciously chose River. You did not want to help Boca. Well, I, <laughs> it's a difficult it's a difficult question. But well, I I don't know. I prefer River Plate. Okay. <laughs> I okay. prefer River Plate. I want to ask another thing because I think a lot of athletes are skeptical of the involvement of women. Maybe also the involvement of, you know, doctors, you know, mm -hmm. especially doctors who are who are working on their brains instead of their bodies. Yes, yes. Have you encountered skepticism and how have you dealt with that? What, what has the reception been like? Look, it's the first time that I work with a team in soccer players, in soccer especially. Because mm -hmm. I have been training, for example, rugby teams, volleyball teams, of a team of males, all of them. But it's my first time with soccer players till now. The reception is really, really good. I think that we can work together in perfect harmony. I'm, I'm truly believe that the gender doesn't matter. And so the, uh, yes. the the players are happy to. Yes, to yes, yes. Well, I will tell you in this, a few months. We're going to check in with you. <laughs> yes, yeah. of course. Of okay, course. I want to see some studies. Yes, of course. And you are Dr. Sandra Rossi. Thank yes. you so much for coming and talking to me on mm, Dummy. It's a pleasure for me. So, David, now we're going to do Tiki Taka, whatever you want to highlight from the week in the world of soccer or art, preferably somewhere in the middle there. Um, what do you have? Well, the thing, the thing that's been bugging me is the, uh, is the fourth official's board with the, the terrible Swiss watch model around it and the brand underneath, which I'm not even going to mention. And I just think, what, you had to make it like, like Disneyland and put, make it in the shape of a watch? Why couldn't we just have the old rectangle, you know? So, and if we are going to have a shape, why don't we have a big cut out of Blatter's head? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I think that would, that would definitely get people's attention when they have to look at the sideline and see how much time's left. Um, okay, <laughs> that's great. Danny, how about you? 
So I guess mine is kind of a combination of soccer and art, if uh, Panini albums are art. Uh, but in April, actually, I think this story just came to kind of came back to the limelight because of Joel Campbell's performance uh, against Uruguay. But he apparently bought like a hundred packs of Panini cards, looking for himself, and tweeted a picture of all these empty packs, saying like, "I can't find myself." Oh! And then Panini tweeted him saying like, "You're in there for sure." Let us know. Keep um, buying them. Yeah, exactly. Just keep buying them. <laughs> if, if you go to panini.com, you can, um, and, and they said you're definitely in there. And then today, um, in a complete turn of events, Mario Balotelli posted a picture from his Panini album, and the whole Italy page is actually just pictures of him. Like, and and then he uh, the caption was, why all was me? Like, so he's just essentially just collected photos of himself for the, uh, for the Italy team. Mario which, Balotelli just owns it. <laughs> it's amazing. So, so great. I want to highlight, you know, I know I did this last week, but um, I want to highlight another thing we're doing on soccer.fusion.net, which is the website that I'm editing this week, this summer. And we have Bobby Warshaw, who is a player. He played for Stanford. Now he plays in Sweden for, I will butcher it if I try to say the name, but the <laughs> the acronym is GAIS. It's a professional team in Sweden. And Bobby is doing a series for us. Geis. 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 But what does it, Geis. What does it stand for? Uh, Göteborg Arbeiter Idrots something. You're not making that up? <laughs> no, it's definitely Gothenburg. Yeah, it is Gothenburg, uh, you're right. And it's, workers, it's a workers' team. <laughs> it's a workers' team, okay. originally, which is the Arbeiter thing. Idrots, uh, I think that's sporting, but I could be mixing it up with Danish. The S, I don't know. Okay, you just did a Germany on us. You just totally embarrassed us. Um, okay, well, so Bobby is, is taking uh, a key moment from big games and he's writing about those so it's not a tactical review of the game it's uh, looking at a moment in the game that, that turned the game or, or was very important from a player's perspective so he wrote about the England-Italy game and sort of what you do as a player when you're defending a set piece you know the, the type of concentration that goes into it what the people's responsibilities are the fact that there's you know one or two guys who are supposed to take a, a leading role and sort of get everyone focused and tell them their responsibilities and he writes that you know there are just a few small signs that maybe England was was letting its guard down a little bit. You know, he, he highlights the fact that Daniel Sturridge was sort of walking back, you know, not looking up. And so when Pirlo made his run, you know, it was a great dummy. Uh, Sturridge was a little bit behind on that. So, you know, it's just a really great series of, I guess you would call them little mini essays on on moments that we're all watching that you might not recognize at the time if you're just sort of a layperson watching the game for fun on your couch and it's fun to just get into a player's head for for a little bit and learn about the game in that way so i want to talk about that go to soccer.fusion.net and you can see it we also had a piece by judah freelander up today that that i edited that was that was very fun we've got all kinds of stuff that does it for today's episode of dummy i want to thank david goldblatt and danny carbassian for joining me also dr sandra rossi and dr seth gasser I also want to thank Slate for letting us be Hang Up and Listen's little brother throughout the tournament, but I also want to say that you should subscribe to Howler Radio in iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts, because we have been releasing little radio documentaries in conjunction with the CBC and NPR. They've been putting them out on the radio, we're putting them out on our podcast feed and on our website, and we're doing extended cuts that gives you a little more than, than what we can fit in the uh, the short times allotted to us on air. Just today, we released an episode on the great Brazilian Garincha, and you can hear that at howlermagazine.com slash radio, or anywhere else, just search Howler Radio. Not dummy, it's listed under Howler Radio.
Granger scored a hat-trick on his professional debut in 1953, but he wasn't just about goals. According to Brazilian soccer expert Tim Vickery, what really made him stand out was his flamboyant playing style. He wasn't a player who would run 80 metres. He would run a little bit, stop. Run a little bit, stop. But very, very often, they doubled up or even tripled up the marking on him. I mean, it's a little bit like watching a Bruce Lee film, where he's, he's able to fight off one, and then dribble around the next, and then dribble around the next. I want to thank Brian Kim for all the music, Lindsay Elliott and Ghostlight, who sang our theme tune. Matthew Nelson is the producer of Howler Radio, and he gets help from Ryan Katniss, who edited today's Dummy, as well as Kira Deppenbrock and Milena Barajas. We'll be back on Friday with a lot more World Cup to talk about. Until then, my name is George Qureshi. Thank you for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.